The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life by Magnet Forensics. Be sure you stay around at the end of this episode for an update on a previous case we told you about. We gave our usual graphic content warning at the beginning of this episode, but we wanted to take a brief pause and give you a bit of detail about the type of crime you'll be hearing about today. This is our first episode featuring a crime involving the sexual exploitation of children. Sadly, investigators and examiners who work with digital evidence are all too familiar with these types of cases. They are never easy to work, from the investigator and interviewers who talk with the victims and their families to the examiners who have to review the horrific graphic content. For today's episode, I'll be talking to Mitch Kaiser. Mitch has been in law enforcement since 1989 and been a cybercrime investigator since 2003. He's the director of the Cybercrimes Unit for the Office of the Prosecuting Attorney in St. Joseph County, Indiana, and teaches digital forensics at the University of Notre Dame. Mitch has conducted over 2,500 digital examinations, resulting in hundreds of arrests and convictions. Today, he'll be telling us about Anne, a nine-year-old girl who was sexually abused by her teacher, Timothy James Wiley. Wiley was an attorney who briefly served as an elementary school teacher and used his access to children to sexually abuse Anne in 2001 when she was in fourth grade. This case is documented in the book Caught in the Web, Inside the Police Hunt to Rescue Children from Online Predators by Julian Scher. By the way, Anne is a pseudonym, not the victim's real name. What struck me about this case is just how much Mitch is an absolute force of nature. Even when everyone around him was doubting his ability to work this case, his conviction and his belief in Anne and her story carried him through. With that, here's Mitch Kaiser. Hi, Mitch. How are you today? Hi, Kim. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell me how you became involved with this case. This is a case from several years ago where I had just recently left the private sector where I was doing computer programming, uh, network engineer, and a little bit of forensics. And I was actually kind of bored in the private sector. I missed being in law enforcement. And I had an opportunity to go back to work for a prosecuting attorney's office doing essentially computer type investigations. At that time, they really didn't know what that entailed or what that meant. Uh, It was back in 2003 that we were doing this. My initial responsibilities were going through drug cases to find information for seizures and stuff like that. I kind of got bored with that and branched out when we started doing some ICAC or Internet Crimes Against Children cases. And about two months after I started that new position, we had a sixth grader report to her her mother that when she was in the fourth grade, that her teacher had repeatedly uh, sexually assaulted her during recess and took photos of her and threatened her that if she would ever tell anyone, he would post them on the internet, that he would say that you're lying about it. So this child waited two years before she got out of the school and then reported it 
to her mom. The only reason I got involved is when she did the original interview with the forensic interviewer, part of what she said was that he took digital pictures of me. And they asked her, well, how do you know that? And they said, well, he showed me on the back of the digital camera the pictures after he took them. So the commander of our special victims unit said, okay, we now have Mitch who does computer crimes. Let's just get him involved in this and see if there's anything he can help with since there may be this computer nexus to it. And that's how I ended up getting involved in the case. Normally, doing forensics, I would never be involved in a real victim case like that. All right. So you became aware uh, because there was this digital nexus to a complaint of a hands-on offense, right? Correct. And Mm -hmm. so did you have the digital camera? I didn't have the digital camera. What we started off with was me watching the interview that the child gave. And what really struck me during the interview she was in the sixth grade, so really not that old, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old. Uh, as she's describing what had happened to her, she's going in these various poses on the floor in the interview and talking about it and showing it. And it just struck me like there's no way a child that age could know anything like that, that there's she's not making this up. Uh, So she just came across as so truthful in it that I had absolutely no doubt that uh, she was victimized. So you're aware then that there's a complaint. You're aware that there's probably some digital evidence here, but you don't have it. So how are you supposed to proceed as an investigator then? Well, what we started off with, and uh, I I knew that this was a, a long shot. The evening after watching her interview, uh, I prepared a search warrant for the suspect's house uh, to seize any digital equipment there. Went to a judge's house, uh, presented him with my affidavit, and he read through it and then got to the end and looked at me and pretty much asked me, is there anything else? And I said, well, no. He's like, well, so essentially you've got something that happened a couple years ago that was just reported now. You have nothing else corroborating or refreshing it or bringing it more current. And I I tried to kind of explain to the judge how truthful I felt that she was about how with digital evidence, staleness is is not as big a concern as other types of, of evidence. And he just said that you don't have the probable cause for it. And he turned down the search warrant. The same time I was doing that, uh, officers with the special victims unit actually did a knock and talk at his house. The the suspect previously was an attorney in the Chicago area, came here to be a teacher, so he's got good legal knowledge, knocked on the door. They said, we'd like to talk to you about an allegation that's been made. He accompanied them to the police station, completely cooperative, sat down, spoke with them, and the officers kind of, they're kind of a little elusive about the nature of the allegation. And he kind of took the lead on it and brought up the child's name of Anne and said, I know this is coming from Anne. She is a little troublemaker. She tells lies all the time. She's always in trouble at at school. So I have no doubt this is who this came from. Uh, And the officers never even confirmed that with him. He talked to them. They really had nothing to hold them on and ended up letting him go. All right. So for you as the investigator, then, 
um, you've you've got some information. So did I guess his uh, his mentioning of her name then probably made you a bit a bit concerned. Oh, right, that he immediately brought up her name, that she would be the one who would make the allegation. Had you gone to her school and, and spoken to any of her teachers or anything, any other teachers in the school? I, I, I did that evening when I, after I got rejected for the search warrant, talked to the investigators about the knock and talk they did. I came home and actually called a friend of mine who I'd gone to school with. And she also teaches in the fourth grade at the same school in the classroom right next to the suspect. And I called her up and I told her that I'm just want to try to get some information. I said, you're going to be treated as an anonymous source in this. I'm not going to put your name in anything. I said, but tell me about Tim Wiley, who is the, the teacher. And she said, he is a fantastic guy said he is very intelligent. The kids love him. He is a great teacher. When the principal's out of the school, he fills in as principal, and he's without a doubt, is in line to be a principal within the uh, school system. I'm like, okay. said, so, well, tell me about Anne. He's like, yeah, I know Anne. She is a little troublemaker. She's always lying about things. She's always getting in trouble. She's always getting sent to the office, is always getting uh, detention. So that was the other teacher's characterization of of Anne and the teacher who the allegation was against. So again, that was a little uh, disappointing. So you're, that didn't really help you to get any further down the road with your investigation then? It, it didn't. The final thing I did within that first week of investigation, subpoenas require a lesser burden of proof. The school system would voluntarily give up his computer for us to forensically examine. Instead of them volunteering it, I got a subpoena for the computer, went back to the judge, and one, he kind of laughed because the day before I was there with a search warrant, and now I come back essentially asking for a different computer and a lower burden of proof on it. He grants the subpoena for about the next week. I do forensics on the school computer and didn't really find anything. There were some text fragments and unallocated space showing evidence that some uh, adult pornography sites had been visited, but really nothing else on the computer. So you, you did what would be your typical protocol, I should say, of an examination then, right? So you took right. the the computer, you, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, made a forensic image of it yep, mm-hmm. and processed it with forensic tools. Correct. Yeah. I took the Computer, uh, removed the hard drive from it, got a forensics image of it, uh, processed it, and then analyzed it using forensic software and turned up empty. <laughs> oh, so now you're you're back to the drawing board, so to speak, right? Yeah. And at that point, I'm thinking, okay, what else can I try? Uh, so, you know, Ann made the allegation that, you know, he said that he would post the photos to the internet. I took some headshots of Ann, sent them to the Center for Missing Exploited Children so they could run them through their child victim program, sent them to ICE to run through to see if they could find any matches, and everything, nothing came back. Uh, so absolutely nothing. And at, at that point, I really wasn't sure what else to try. I stayed in close contact with the parents of the victim. In fact, at least once a month, I would 
call them and talk to them and just tell them that your case hasn't been forgotten about. There's been absolutely no progress this month on it. I said, but I am still working on this case. I said, I fully believe what your daughter says happened to her. I said, so I will keep working this case. They were, you know, understandably, they were appreciative of it, but I think they they felt a little discouraged, and I know that Anne felt discouraged because it's so difficult for uh, victims of abuse to take that step to come forward and report it, and she had the courage to go ahead and, and do that, and in her eyes, you know, yes, we say we're working on it, but nothing's happened. No one's been arrested. He's still a free man. He ended up resigning from his job at the school and went back to the Chicago area to resume up a law career. But she was very discouraged about it that, you know, she did report it and it doesn't look like anything's happening with it. So did you actually come in contact with Anne? You said you watched the video uh, interview with her, right? Right. I watched the interview. I never, the, the first face-to-face contact I had with her was... Uh, probably two years after after this point. During the entire investigation, anytime I had to go over there to speak with her, her parents, uh, they made arrangements to, that she was either somewhere else or in her bedroom. I in, intentionally didn't want to meet her. I really, I felt that my, I guess my sense of the investigation may have been a, a little clouded uh, in that, you know, typically I don't take cases personally. And this one, I kind of violated that rule that I, I really did, that I knew this kid was telling the, the truth. So I, I really didn't want the face-to-face of her seeing me and getting to know me and vice versa as it's going through this process. So Mr. Wiley has then moved to the, color, or to the Chicago area, right? Correct. He's now in Chicago resuming a law career. But you are a police officer where? Uh, in St. Joseph County, Indiana. Okay, so what about jurisdiction? How does that work for you? Does this is this the end of your investigation? Uh, it's not the end of my investigation. Uh, I'm going on, you know, still working normal cases, cyber tip line reports. Anne was very specific when she described the room at the school of what it looked like. She referred to it as the kiln room, meaning it had gray walls and a red firing kiln in it that they used for for pottery. So pretty much the tens of thousands of normal cyber tip line images for the next year and a half that I'm I'm looking through, I kind of got that in the back of my mind of this room with a red kilman, if I ever happen to see something like that. Uh, I talked to the people at CVIP at NCMEC, gave them that, that same information, that if you ever see something like this, let me know. And uh, that pretty much uh, didn't yield any results. It was probably a year and a half later where we got, I'll say, our first break in the case. I get a cyber tip line report. Well, actually, Yahoo filed a cyber tip line report on an email address of K loves it rough. Uh, Nick Mick did initial searches on it. Uh, said looks like the IP address uh, geolocated to New York. They sent it to the New York State Police ICAC unit. They sent out a subpoena on it. They get the subpoena back, and it comes back to the account of. Timothy Wiley in Mishawaka, Indiana. So they're like, he's not in New York. So as is common 
we got a phone call, you know, um, detective such and such with New York ICAC, we have a case we'd like to refer to you. You know, we do that all the time. So um, I tell them no problem, give them the information where to send it. And then uh, I tell them, I said, before I uh, leave you on the phone, could you tell me who the, the target of the investigation is? That way we can start looking into information. And when he said it's a Timothy Wiley of Mishawaka, Indiana, I about dropped. So he, he sent me the case. I get it, look at it, the subpoena results returned to his apartment, to his name. I intended to right then get a search warrant for the apartment, went to the apartment complex because it's a year and a half later from the last time I was there and learned that he had since moved out and he is back in Illinois. So obviously couldn't get a search warrant for the apartment. Went back to my office and got a hold of Nick Mick again and asked them to do a technical assistance report, gave him all the information on Wiley that I had, along with the new information that was learned in that cyber tip line report. They do searches and found uh, that an email address that was tied to him uh, was discovered by the Dallas Police Department when they took down a subscription child pornography site. He had used a credit card tied to him and an email address of love to teach 10-year-olds and registered for this site. So we obtained that Yahoo name. Chris Feller at NickMick then ran more information and found that that profile of love to teach 10-year-olds, the information in there was he was indicating that he did have a 10-year-old daughter that was looking for like-minded traders. He listed his name as TJ and that his occupation was a teacher. She gathered that information, sent it to me. I then did more online research on it and found that that same email address was associated with a ICQ account. I looked up the ICQ account associated with it and he again had his name listed as TJ. He had his occupation lifted as teacher, and he put in his profile that he has a special 10-year-old angel who will do anything that he says, and he's looking to trade pictures. And then he had a normal picture in the profile. As soon as I saw that picture, I kind of froze. I recognized the dining room from Ann's house, and I recognized the picture as being of Ann. It was probably four to five years old, but without a doubt, it was her. I ended up going to her house that evening, showed this picture to her, her mom and dad, and they said, yes, that is her. That is our house here. They even remembered giving that picture to her to take to school for a school project that she was doing for that class. So I now had him tied to that and the picture tied to it. To see if the account was still active, uh, I then used one of my undercover accounts, went to ICQ. Uh, I portrayed myself as a 13-year-old uh, girl who loves chatting and shopping and put a, added a friend request for him. The next morning, he had accepted the friend request, so I knew that account is a live account. Then sent out subpoenas and search warrants to get all the account information on that. I then approached my prosecutor and told him that this is the information that we had. And 
there's a difference between, you know, probable cause to make an arrest and then beyond a reasonable doubt what can be proved. Without a doubt, we had probable cause uh, at that point. We did not have beyond a reasonable doubt. Our prosecutor, I want to say, essentially took a, a chance on on it. He said, I know she's being truthful also. I know you still have a lot of work to do on this, but based on this, there is enough for me to draft charges for child molesting against him. Uh, so we ended up getting an arrest warrant for child molesting for him. So tell me, you have your charges that were for the hands-on offense, right, for the, the molestation in your your jurisdiction, right? Correct. But you still have lingering out here the fact that he's moved away, right? Right. So the next thing that I did, uh, he, he had moved to Wheaton, Illinois. I contacted the, the Wheaton Police Department, was put in touch with a detective there, explained to him that I have an arrest warrant, uh, and requested that he obtain a search warrant for Wiley's apartment at that. I would then travel up there. Uh, and like you said, I have no jurisdiction in, in Illinois, but I would travel up there to assist as they as serve that search warrant. And I would show them my arrest warrant so they can serve the arrest warrant. The officer at the Wheaton Police Department went to the uh, state attorney's office and was obtaining the search warrant. And just out of sheer coincidence, the attorney next to the attorney that was working with the officer from Wheaton was working with the FBI on a search warrant for an apartment. They could hear one another talking, and they realized we're talking about the same place. Just so coincidental. And FBI Innocent Images Task Force in Illinois was there obtaining a search warrant for Wiley's apartment for uploading and distribution of child pornography. So all of us ended up talking. What we agreed on is that the FBI will get the, the search warrant to hit the residence. I've got the arrest warrant for them that we would all meet there the next morning and serve those. So next morning around six in the morning, uh, we all meet, we brief, and we go to the apartment. And keep in mind, he is, he's you know, still an attorney. So there's issues of privilege communication and stuff like that. And I kind of joke, you know, when you do search warrants, there's the, the stack of officers that go in that have specific responsibilities. I think I was number 16 in the stack of, of that. There were FBI lawyers before me put put in the, the stack. And, and it, was, it was a small apartment anyway. So I'm like, you know, you go FBI and you do it. So we serve the search warrant. He is there. He goes out. They take him out into a, an FBI car, sit him down in there, uh, talk to him a, a little bit. And he tells him, you know, I, I don't want to talk to you about anything. So he immediately lawyered up with the FBI. They do a preview of, of evidence inside and find absolutely nothing on any of the digital items. At that point, uh, the FBI said, you know, we don't have enough to hold him. We will process the scene. We'll take the digital evidence. I then approached him uh, along with the Wheaton officer, asked him to step from the car, introduced myself to him, told him that I was with the, the prosecuting attorney's office in, in South Bend, and told him that I have an arrest warrant for him for child molesting. 
And the look on his eyes, he kind of rolled his eyes along the lines of this again, you know, that thinking it really wasn't anything. Asked him to turn around. I handcuffed him. And then the, the Wheaton officer then took him to the county jail there. At that point, I called. It was about 8.30 in the morning. I called the victim's dad and told him where I was and said that I had just placed him under arrest. So just keep in mind, though, we're, we still got a long road ahead of us, but there is progress. So, you know, out of 15 months of pretty much no progress, my monthly phone call saying, I haven't forgotten about you, haven't forgotten about you, they get the phone call of, I just arrested him. So they were obviously happy about that. Uh, Anne was very happy about that. I knew that there was still a lot of work to do because uh, we didn't have it beyond a reasonable doubt yet. One thing a jury is going to want, you have someone saying, he was taking pictures of me and molesting me. Where are those pictures? And right then we didn't have anything yet. So uh, even though that was a, a great point, the investigation obviously is still continuing. Right. You you were just beginning then, right? Yes. That literally was close to just the, the beginning. So when you put the handcuffs on Mr. Wiley, what were you thinking? You didn't already have your digital evidence in hand, though. Were you feeling like that this was this was it, that this was going to work out, this was going to go through? Were you nervous about arresting him? I, I wasn't the least bit nervous about arresting him. I had full confidence that the digital trail that already started developing at that point, that I pretty much had no doubt that if he had in fact, posted anything of her on the internet, we would end up finding it. It's, like I said, from the prosecutor's side, it was a big risk for them to take. Uh, and I must have been pretty convincing when I convinced them that, yes, I will prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. So, no, I wasn't nervous one bit. I, I knew that, yes, I would be able to prove this case. When we made the agreement with the FBI of we'll go on your search warrant and our arrest warrant, part of what we decided is that we would have, our office would have access to the digital evidence also. All the digital evidence went to the CART uh, unit in Chicago, and there was some miscommunication between the FBI agents with innocent images and CART agents, because typically if an entity does a forensics exam on, on an item, you're not going to then say, here, now you go ahead and do this exam. So they did their forensics exam, and they they really found nothing. They found a, a lot of school photos, but nothing illegal. There were several normal other normal pictures of Anne on his computer that, you know, their analysts had no idea who she was, so they didn't even recognize those. So I, I asked for the evidence uh, so I could do the forensics on it. Originally was told no, said that uh, we don't, it's not our policy for someone else to do a forensics after we do it. Uh, it took several weeks of discussions, some of them pretty spirited, back and forth. Uh, as you can imagine, after close to two years now that I get to this point, there was no way I was going to be told, no, you cannot have that computer equipment to do forensics on it. Uh, the attorney general ended up getting involved and said, don't give them the original thing, give them a forensics image of it, all that. So that's what they did. So they send me a forensics image of his uh, computer and sit down, start doing the forensics on that. In allocated space, 
of the saved photos, there was just a bunch of normal photos, school photos, family photos. It was a very clean computer, very little normal pornography on it, zero child pornography on it. Let's let's back up one second. Okay. Let's talk about you getting the the evidence. You got this forensic image, right? And so you were confident that this was a forensic image and it was a replication or was it a duplication? How how were you feeling confident that you had as close to the original evidence as you could? I, I was 100% confident I had an exact copy of the uh, original evidence from the computer. Uh, the FBI... Uh, obtained an E01 forensics image of the hard drive on the computer, uh, hashed the hard drive, hashed the image, uh, everything matched. They then uh, copied it to an external hard drive, hashed it on the hard drive, that hash matched. They shipped it to me. Uh, I got that hard drive, copied it to my forensics computer into my evidence folder, hashed it again, and it all matched. So at this point, I think we've got seven hashes uh, all matching that here is our, our original evidence. So I was, I was confident that, yes, this was an exact copy of his computer. Okay. So when you've hashed it, you've you've used some type of an algorithm, right? And in order to calculate that hash, right? And that's what's Correct. matching. Right. That's what's matching. It was a uh, SHA-1 hash is what was calculated on it. Okay. And so then you said you were able to see in allocated space. Tell me what you mean by allocated space. Allocated space is, is space on the computer that is uh, used space allocated to files. So where files are saved on the computer, uh, nothing else can be written to that space. So if you save a picture, it's written to a certain area on the hard drive and it stays there in allocated space. Nothing else can be saved there until you decide, okay, I want to delete it or something like that. Uh, so I went through essentially everything that was saved on the computer, everything that was viewable to the user of that computer and came up empty on it. There was nothing illegal uh, at all on there. So tell me, when you were going through his computer and you're not finding anything, how were you feeling? Were you starting to get a little bothered that there wasn't anything? Uh, there was a, a certain level of frustration because everything kept coming up so clean um, on everything. Uh, and again, it was something that I knew that you cannot completely cover your tracks digitally ever. There's always going to be a trace of something. It's just a matter of finding that trace. So ideally, it would have been great if I could have searched the allocated space and then right there on uh, my documents, my pictures, and in the kiln room, 50 photos. That would have been ideal, but you wouldn't expect that. Uh, so the fact that I really had to dig for it, it really didn't bother me that much knowing, again, that there's going to be a trace. If there, if that was a computer that something was done on, there would be a trace on there. The only way that there wouldn't be is if he had taken physically taken that hard drive out of that computer and swapped it with another one, or physically taken it out and ran some sort of full disk wiping program on it to destroy everything on it. Even if it's the hard drive in there and 
there's lots of software packages out there uh, that are advertised. You know, they defeat forensics, and this will securely uh, get rid of all your tracks of everything on it. That even running those programs, we can still find traces of, of information. So once I saw that this was a hard drive, that it was it was the original hard drive in the computer, it wasn't swapped out, there was stuff on there going back years of normal activity, that if this was the hard drive, that yes, I would find that information eventually. So what do you do from there? Uh, the next thing that I did is... I extracted from that forensics image all of the unallocated space. And what unallocated space is, is essentially free space on a computer where new information can be written to that free space. Uh, the free space may be completely empty, or more commonly, the free space has data in there that's no longer active data. So if you delete a photo, the actual data from the photo doesn't actually go away and is removed from the hard drive. It's marked as unallocated space, and the user can no longer get to it. Uh, so uh, I ran an operation to extract all of the unallocated space from the computer, and then did a couple of things. Uh, the first thing I did is I processed it all looking for just JPEG files any digital pictures that are in unallocated space. Got tens of thousands of them back, none of them. Illegal images, everything was fine. There was some pornography, nothing Ill illegal. How do you think he was able to keep this uh, separated out or to keep those pictures out of that digital evidence? Right. Uh, what we think happened there is, other than the normal school photos, we don't think he ever saved any of the illegal photos on the computer. Looking at the computer, we saw evidence of a specific zip drive that had been plugged into the USB port many times on the computer. So it looked like he was using an external zip drive. When I saw that on the computer, I reached out to the FBI and said, when we did the search warrant, did you recover any zip disks or a zip drive? And th they didn't. They didn't have any. And, you know, doing these types of search warrants, unfortunately, we know that we never get 100% of everything. There's always going to be something somewhere that we miss. So what it looks like is he was saving everything externally to a zip drive, and we never got any zip disks or, or the drive. And still to this day, we don't know what happened to those. Okay, so what happened next? The next thing that I did was actually use a hex editor to manually view all of the unallocated space, essentially all of the hex code, scrolling through, viewing all of it, at that time, I think it was a 20 gig hard drive. So it's, you know, 2004. So it's still a lot of data, but it's not like the two terabyte hard drives that we have now. So I'm scrolling through and part of what I'm looking for, we already had one ICQ account tied to them. And we already had uh, several Yahoo uh, accounts tied to them. So I'm going through all of the unallocated space, essentially looking for any type of email address, Yahoo accounts, ICQ accounts, any other type of, uh, of accounts that I could find. 
doing that, I found probably close to 40 other Yahoo screen names and ICQ accounts that at one time had been used on that computer by the user. I compiled a list of all of those, sent them to NickMick and said, could you run every one of these screen names, email addresses for any previous cyber tip line reports? And these cyber tip line reports, these have come from potentially the public or potentially internet service providers. Is that right? Or where else may they have come from? The cyber tip line reports can be reported by private citizens. If they see something on online that's illegal, they can file a uh, report about it. Uh, some cyber tip line reports come from police agencies as they're doing their investigations. The majority of them come from internet service providers, though. By law, any service provider, if they locate evidence of child exploitation on their servers, they have to file a cyber tip line report with the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, back then, Yahoo and AOL were the big internet service providers, and that's where most of the cyber tip line reports came from. Uh, so Yahoo doing what they're supposed to do has filed many hundreds of thousands of cyber tip line reports. So once I had all of these addresses, I asked Nick Mick to go through and search all of them for any previous reports. And part of what they pull up with the reports is any images that were tied to that account. I send that off and then I end up leaving for a week for a training conference. On a Friday that I return, after being gone all week, I have at my desk a disc from the Center for Missing and Exploited Children that has all of the results from the cyber tip line report on it. I'd been gone all week. It now probably about six o'clock in the evening, and I get back to my office and see the disc there. And of course, I couldn't just let it lay there. Uh, I call my wife, tell her I'm going to be a little late, sit down, put the disc in the computer and saw there were probably close to 50 cyber tip line reports containing tens of thousands of images from those screen names. I start going through the images, just looking at thumbnails of them. Uh, and how I said for the past two years, I've kind of had an eye out for gray room, red kiln in the background. As I'm scrolling, there it was. And I look, get full-size image of it. It is the room in the school exactly like she had described it with the gray walls. In the background was this red ceramic kiln. And she was in the, in the photo, on the ground, nude, in an exact pose that years earlier in her interview, she said, here is a pose that he put me in. And we had it then. It was a nude photo of her in school in the room of where she said it happened. I end up cropping the photo. So I had just her face, woke up her parents, <laughs> went to their house. And they're probably thinking, do you ever sleep? <laughs> went to their house, showed it to them. I said, do you recognize this? And she's like, yeah, that is Anne. And I told, I didn't really describe the photo in great detail to him, but essentially said this is a cropped photo uh, that was taken in the school where she said the abuse happened. Uh, after that, I went home, 
the next morning, got a hold of my prosecutor, went to his office, told him, I have a nude photo of the victim in the school, showed him the photo. And from there, it's like, yeah, we've completely got it now. He ends up calling the defense attorney, telling the defense, we're going to be filing additional discovery. The discovery is this photo. From there, we ended up securing a, a plea in it where we made an, an offer of plead straight up uh, to child molesting in exchange for a 30-year sentence, and that's what he ended up taking. So that was um, an offer then that was put on the table. So instead of having to go to trial then, he was able to accept that plea, and then there's no trial, and then Anne doesn't have to testify. Right, and that was a a big thing for us. Uh, you know, she is 100% right telling the the truth in in all of this. It is still very difficult to to one have to get up and testify to it about what what happened. Uh, and second, she had a history of being a troublemaker, telling lies, where uh, she would be subjected to some pretty intense cross-examination. I could see the defense also calling witnesses to testify about her, about how they know her to be untruthful. This eliminated all of that, that there's the proof. The picture is the proof of it. Uh, So uh, we're very pleased that we're able to secure that plea. And the plea was for the hands-on offense. Right. The plea was for the hands-on offense for child molesting. Okay, so he still has some other pending charges, is that right? Or at this point he does? No, he still had pending charges from the FBI. He ended up pleading guilty to distribution of child pornography, one federal count of that, and he received an eight-year federal prison sentence for that offense. So what happened first? Is he serving the 30-year sentence first or the eight-year sentence? He actually served the federal term first, and then after that was starting the uh, the state term. All right. So when all of this comes about with the plea, you don't have to go to trial to testify. Anne doesn't have to go to testify, but you do go to court for the sentencing, right? Yeah, we do go to the court for sentencing, but I'm going to jump a few months before that, uh, the actual plea hearing of it. Uh, so in in plea hearings, if someone's pleading guilty, they can't just stand up there and say, I'm guilty. They have to give essentially a factual basis uh, so that the judge has a f- knowledge that they have a full understanding of what they're pleading guilty to, that they understand it, that they know that they did this, and that is why uh, they're guilty of it. And came to that hearing, but she didn't she didn't go into the courtroom. I stood off to the side on a side door as she could watch. When Wiley went up, uh, typically a uh, when defendants plead guilty and they give the factual basis, it's the attorney asking them questions, them saying either yes, yes, yes or no. Wiley was an attorney. So when he did have an attorney, but he, he said that, yes, I would like to plead guilty, and here is why. He gave probably the most detailed factual basis that I have ever heard, where he went through and he talked about 
specific dates from this time to this time that he would summons her from recess, that he would take her to this room. Here's what he would do. Here's how he would take the photos. He admitted to uploading them to the Internet afterwards. But he gave this great factual basis pleading guilty, just him admitting to absolutely everything in it. And and standing there off to the side with me and her parents, and you could just see how, uh, just the look of her eyes of, that she was just so proud that, yes, that it's shown that she was right, he was wrong, he victimized her, and there he was in court now, pretty much telling the world, here's what I did to her. Yeah. So he's not standing there rolling his eyes any longer. No, no longer rolling his eyes. Yeah. So... That was the the plea hearing. Uh, the next thing after that, about five months later, was the sentencing hearing. Anne talked with her mother and decided that she wanted to give a victim impact statement during it. Uh, now, is this common? Uh, it, it's common in some cases. In child molesting cases, I would say that it's typically not common because it's something that you— that the victim has to, this she can't do off to the side. She has to go in the courtroom in front of the judge and read out her statement to the court. And she decided that's something that she felt she she needed to do as part of this whole process. So the, the sentence, we already know what it's going to be. It's going to be for 30 years. But everyone who wants to speak in it has an opportunity to speak. So Anne wanted to give a victim impact statement. So the first time in years, she's standing within five feet of Wiley. So up in front of the bench, you have Wiley and his attorney, prosecutor, and then Ann standing right next to the prosecutor. And she reads this outstanding victim impact statement about what uh, the abuse, how it has hurt her, how she trusted him, and he violated that, uh, really took him to task that, you know, part of what he told her, that if you ever report anything about this, I will say you're lying, I will say you're making stuff up, I will post your picture on the internet, so all of these threats, and he he did all of that, really kind of laid into him about the failure to take responsibility, that when it came about, he put all the blame on her uh, about it and about what a coward he was for that. But she just gave a great victim impact statement. After that, he had a chance to speak. And I think it was surprising that uh, he spoke because at, at this point, he gave the whole factual basis already during the sentencing agreement or during the plea agreement. It really wasn't going to affect anything. He really didn't need to speak at all. But he gave uh, kind of a, a short statement, pretty much saying that I accept responsibility for everything here, that I completely ruined my life, that I'm going to be in prison for years. I want Anne to know that none of this was her fault, but just gave a, another really good statement there. What did you do after after this hearing? After the hearing, I go back out into the courtroom, and I had obviously by this point had already met Anne at the plea hearing, 
where you know it was kind of a cordial introduction type of thing and uh, here's who I am and obviously I know her uh, for the sentencing agreement there was some reluctance if uh, she was going to read her victim impact statement. And she and I actually talked quite a bit outside the courtroom beforehand. And I told her, I said, you know, without a doubt, this is going to be probably the most difficult thing you've ever done in your life. I said, but if you make it through this, you are going to have probably the best feeling you've ever had in your life. After the sentencing agreement, I'm outside the courtroom and she just comes running up to me and gives me a big hug saying that, you are so right that I feel so great. I'm so happy this is all over. You know, it's taken at, at this point where four years since she was, was abused. It's taken that long, but it is finally over. And everything that she said was the truth in it. So she's able to to try to pick up and move on then, right? She's able to to try to put this behind her and uh, you're, you know, able to move on to your next case because I'm sure you still have plenty more that are that were out there. <laughs> yeah, plenty more cases. Uh, one final thing I did in it after uh, the news stories and after the plea agreement and everything that he said in the hearing and the, the sentencing, the teacher friend of mine that was in the classroom next next door, she gives me a call and we're talking and she said that she still can't believe it. She said, if, if I would not have heard or read exactly what he said, you could never convince me that he was guilty of this. And then we then talked about Anne a little bit. And I said, now look back at her behavior now, knowing what you know now. Said she's in fourth grade every day after lunch, you know, she would intentionally eat lunch very slow to try to take up the whole hour so he didn't have any time. She didn't want to go outside for recess because she knew if she would, he would summon her in. Said, so what did she do? You know, she can't tell anyone. She's being threatened by him. Said, so she acts out and she gets in trouble and gets sent to the principal's office, gets sent to detention. That's better than being subjected to sexual abuse. That's why she was doing that. And she's like, yeah, it's, you know, looking back at it now that she said, I've never even thought of something like that, but realized that's exactly why she was acting like that, to take herself out of that situation. What an opportunity for her to learn, though, that the folks that may potentially do something like this aren't necessarily going to have a lot of red flags. They're not going to signal to folks that they're actually doing something that, that's hurting other people. And then those who are being hurt, it's not necessarily going to be obvious or there's something that's kind of drawing that attention away that would make someone think something else. So that's great opportunity for you to be able to, to talk to her at, as a teacher. Hopefully she was able to share that with other folks and other teachers that uh, teach with her within uh, her school as well. And, and to be able to let other folks pay better attention maybe, or at least know a little bit different for what to look for. Right. And I think that that did, like I said, she definitely saw it in a different light. The, the school system saw it in a different light after seeing all that. And there's some some changes that they, they implemented because of this. One being that, that kiln room was a windowless room. 
Uh, one of the first things they did was take the door off of that room and put on a door that has a big window on it. So just a, a little thing like that. So they they recognized it and they, they changed things. But I think it did make a, a big impact, obviously, on my teacher friend and then her other teachers that this was a trusted colleague of theirs that they never suspected anything. And then when it the allegations were made. They still said, you know, this is a kid making up lies against a highly respected teacher, but uh, none of them uh, ever saw anything. So do you think Mr. Wiley had other victims besides Anne, or were you able to locate those with those complaints that you had received uh, or that McMack had received, and then you were able to go through them? Were there other victims, or or did you locate those? Right. We we didn't locate any other victims. One thing we did locate, looking at the the profiles and his accounts, how he had a normal picture of Anne in in one of his accounts. We found photos of three other children at the school in similar type of accounts. So it was normal photos, but in a, in accounts that were being used for child exploitation. All three of those children were identified. Uh, they were interviewed and none of them disclosed any behavior. Once we saw those photos and I knew what those children looked like, I went back and reviewed again all of the images I had in the in the case to see where any of them were of, of those three that we knew of now, and none of them were. How long had he been teaching at the school? Uh, I think around five years he'd been a, a teacher there. The only image that we ever found was that one in the kiln room, and other images have turned up. Again, part of what Nick Mick does, you know, you mentioned that after we do forensics, we can submit our images to them, and they check them for known images. And then anything that's not identified, they do a manual review on it. The analysts in CVIP knew about the kiln room, and two or three other pictures of her have surfaced that have been located throughout the country on other offenders' computers. So he did distribute more than just that one there's just the one that we found, but there have been others of her that have been found. That's another one of the groups within uh, NECMIC, as you're saying. They actually keep track of those known victims, and uh, those known victims can elect to be told, is that right, if right. they those pictures do surface later. And that's what you're saying is that uh, you were made aware that they had surfaced later. Right. And Nick Mick won't notify the victim of, of photos, but when they recognize a photo that's part of what's a, a known series of this child's been identified, they then contact that investigating officer, which in this case was me. Uh, and several times so far, they've reached out to me saying that they found an additional photo that was submitted by whatever police department. And then we'll follow up on it where I'll call them and talk to them and get the circumstances of their, their case and, you know, who do they have in, in custody? And then part of what I, I tell them that, you know, if you need it for testimony, that I know this child, I work this case, that if it comes up that you need it for testify, that this is a real child, real victim, that we're happy to come testify for you. So the day of that last hearing, uh, and and gives you the big hug, uh -huh. and you're able to uh, you know, shake her father's hand and hug her mom. And uh, you had something else going on that day, though, right? 
Yeah, just coincidentally, uh, like I said, at, at this point, I'd been back at the prosecutor's office for, for two years. And like internet crimes and computer forensics everywhere, it really started taking off. So we start officially started up a cyber crimes unit. It just coincidentally fell that our inauguration day was the day of this sentencing hearing. As part of that, Chris Feller with Nick Mick, who is the analyst that worked with me on this entire case, I invited her to South Bend for the opening of the, of the unit. We didn't know at the time that this sentencing will, would also be going on. So it was a great experience for her to see, here's all the work that she did at Nick Mick related to this case, where so many times on most of their cases, they do all this work and send it out and then have no idea whatever happens with the case. She did all this work and she got to sit in the courtroom see the proceedings, see him sentencing, and then she got to meet Anne afterwards and the parents afterwards, which it's very rare if ever they actually get to meet victims in the millions of photos that come across uh, their computers there. So that that was a good opportunity for her uh, for that, and I know she really enjoyed that and appreciated that, and the family really enjoyed actually meeting her because uh, they knew what a pivotal role Nick Mick played in this and specifically what Chris did uh, for me in it. Uh, pretty much without them, this this wouldn't have been solved. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this would have been another he said, she said case and nothing would have happened of it. The commander of our special victims unit I give him all the credit for getting me involved just because I said he took digital pictures. Uh, normally, we're not involved in these types of, of cases. Uh, if this is something that him and his officers would have just done and I would have never known anything about, the case would have never been solved. They worked their part of the investigation on it and ended up closing the case because it was the he said, she said, no proof of it. But by recognizing that there was potentially digital evidence involved and getting me involved on the forensics aspect of it and the fact that I knew without a doubt that Anne was telling the truth. And quite frankly, there was no way I was going to let this go ever. <laughs> and not giving up on it, that we're able to to prove that. Yeah, working with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is uh, an absolute honor. Uh, every time that I would work with them when I was uh, working cases, I, I loved uh, speaking with them because they always gave me something else to think about or some other aspect to consider in my examination. And and oftentimes when people think of digital forensics, uh, most of the time you think mm -hmm. of just the examiner or the investigator just mm -hmm. sitting in front of their computer, just mm -hmm. either looking at pictures or looking at, you know, just the raw data. Oftentimes, though, we're having to work with those external agencies to make it so that yeah. we're able to forward these cases on through the legal process and to get maybe that next little piece of data, which is what you had to do. You know, it was a lot of going back and forth for you with even mm -hmm. different groups within NECMEC to be able to find out, have you already uh, seen this picture? Okay, well, you haven't. Well, let's talk about then, are there other mm -hmm. uh, complaints that have come in in regards to these accounts then and go about it from various angles. And 
I can't say enough good things about the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children because in addition to helping us there on uh, the back end of the examination and, and the investigation, they're helping also a, a lot of our victims on the front end as well because they take those cyber tips and they accept those uh, from the public. So it's it's really uh, phenomenal that Chris was able to come to, to be with you that day. Yeah, and uh, Chris and I had uh, knew each other prior to this case. And again, this is going back a, a few years. You know, anyone who works with Nick McNaught knows that their exploited child division, their child victim identification program, just how big those departments are right now. Back at this time, CVIP, the child victim identification program, was two people sharing a 10 by 10 office with two desks next to one another. Uh, Chris was one of them, and that's how I met her. Uh, and she was a graduate of St. Mary's, and uh, I teach at Notre Dame, so we had that kind of connection there. Uh, and Prior to this case, I had taken several uh, trips to NICMIC for training and to work with them to learn about everything that they do and how, how they can help. So it was a relationship cultivated before, quite frankly, it was really needed to this extent. And I think that really helped to where, you know, obviously the Center for Missing and Exploited Children is going to do a great job on any investigation they get. But this wasn't a, a cold call from a police officer. She and I already knew each other. I knew pretty much everyone at Nick Mick at that at that time. And they just bent over backwards and did everything that they could could do. And there's like I said, there's no way this case would have been solved without them. So you mentioned Notre Dame and your work there at the university. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to have to ask you about this group of students that you have, <laughs> and and tell me about this yeah. program that you've got because before I had met you in person, which was a few years ago, mm-hmm. before I met you in person, uh, I had read all about this group <laughs> of students and what you all were doing that was out of the ordinary. So you got to tell us about it. Yeah. Uh, so about seven years ago, uh, I came back to work for the elected prosecutor doing c- computer crimes. And similar to so many labs doing forensics, uh, had a substantial backlog turnaround time. And at the time, I was also teaching digital forensics at, at Notre Dame. And I learned that just the caliber of students I had in class, that the, the students were just outstanding, the way they think, the way they process information. So I pitched initially an idea to a prosecutor, can I have just one intern to see how they work, working with cyber crimes with me? So I did one year, one intern each semester, and they did a, a really good job doing analysis, researching information. So then I approached the prosecutor and said, hey, here's what I'd like to do. I said, I already talked to Notre Dame and they're on board with this. If prosecutor's office is on board. I'd like to start a formal internship program. Three students from Notre Dame, they're assigned to the cyber crimes unit. They work 10 hours a week that we will pay them for doing digital forensics. Oh, and to remove any roadblocks, I want you to swear them in as law enforcement officers. And he looked at me and he said, there is absolutely no way ever that is ever going to happen. I'm guessing you didn't take no for an answer. Yeah, and he, this prosecutor, we, he started as a deputy prosecutor in 1989 when I started as a police officer in 89. So we came up through the ranks 
together. So we have a really good relationships. And he knows that, no, I won't give up. So I kept pestering him and pleading my case, saying, here's why this will work. And finally, he said yes. So for this first year, we had three students sworn in as investigators that I trained in digital forensics. Coming into it, none of them had any digital forensics knowledge. It's not something that's taught it at Notre Dame. But what they had is, because of their age, their entire life, they have worked with digital devices, and they had great critical and creative thinking skills. They did absolutely fantastic. That was five years ago. We started off with three, and we have since expanded in five years from three to 20 students now. So now there's there's 20 students working out of the cybercrimes unit where the majority of digital forensics cases in our area, and it's not just our county anymore, we formally do eight counties now in northern Indiana, and then informally pretty much throughout the state and Michigan since we're so close to it. But the students do the digital forensics exams where pretty much active police investigations that within a day or so, stuff that they see on the news, they're getting digital evidence for to examine it. And they do an absolutely outstanding job. One thing that that came of this with, with that manpower doing it, we carry a zero case backlog. And our average turnaround time on forensics, uh, where we do a whole analysis on it, is roughly about three to four days. So our officers are getting digital evidence immediately for their uh, investigations, which has helped so much in investigations and prosecutions. But the backlogs, the, the big thing for the last four years, we have had a zero case backlog, which means if someone submits a request for examination, Within minutes, we're telling them, deliver the evidence, and it's assigned to someone. That is absolutely amazing because so many laboratories have backlogs that are one, maybe two, maybe even more years that's taking so long uh, to get these pieces of evidence examined and to get these cases moved through the legal process. So this, the whole program is amazing. And again, it took someone like you who wasn't willing to accept a no and who had to think outside the box and who was able to also see the opportunity these students had and to see their potential in helping you. So if they're sworn officers, do they get to do search warrants as well? They used to, meaning that one thing that once we got into this and we saw that the the unit is going to be primarily students, one thing that I did was transition all of the ICAC cases out of our unit because I didn't want students exposed to that type of material. Those are the cases where we would get to go out into the field to do search warrants. So it was that trade-off there of getting rid of those cases, but very few opportunities now to go out in the field. And I think without a doubt, it was the right decision to get those out of the unit because we, we have one student that's 17 years old working in the unit. So 17 to 21 year olds, I don't want to expose them to that type of material. We have addressed that though. A couple years ago, myself and two of my students went and gave a presentation at the state conference for the Indiana Prosecuting Attorney Council, and we talked about our unit. So you had close to 300 prosecutors in there seeing how we do things, seeing our zero case backlog. And after that presentation, 
many of them are contacting the president of IPAC saying, how can we do that? We want that. So they asked us to write a proposal to expand to three other units throughout the state. So again, I give it to the students and say, here, write this proposal to expand units. We work collaboratively together, write this proposal, send it to IPAC. About a year goes by, we don't hear anything. And then we learn that they got a state representative to sponsor it. He increased it to 10 units at a funding level of 300000 per year, and it passed through and was passed into law with absolutely no issues at all. So we got $3 million annual funding to expand our model throughout the state of Indiana. Also, part of what we talked about in that is that we don't do ICAC cases because of students. I said those will still fall on the responsibility of the state police since they're the ICAC representative. And our prosecutor asked one of the state senators, would you throw in another million dollars that we can give just to the state police since they'll be doing all the ICAC? So they increased it to $4 million a year uh, for funding. Uh, So the state police get a million dollars a year. They're handling all the ICAC. Everyone else divides up $3 million for 10 units throughout the state to do the model that uh, we built. And those actually just went online January 1st, that we're in the process of rolling all of those out. But again, it, it all started from me looking at my class thinking, hey, these kids are pretty bright. I wonder if they could come help me with forensics. And it turned into that. <laughs> so are those other uh, satellite laboratories, are they on university campuses as well? They're all affiliated with universities. I think some of them are on campuses. Others are out of prosecuting attorneys' offices. Our first three years, we're out of the the county police department here. And then once it could see that it's going to be primarily Notre Dame students, I approached Notre Dame to see, do you have space on campus that we could have? Because then it's obviously so convenient for students just to come to a campus building. Uh, so one of the best moves I ever did was getting moved to the campus of Notre Dame for my, my new office. <laughs> Thanks for joining us here today, Mitch. Uh, thank you. I appreciate being here. I enjoyed it. It's been a, a great opportunity for us to learn about this case, but also to learn about the goodness that you're doing there with the students at the university and and so many of the good things that you're doing out there to help the folks uh, in your area. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Remember the victim impact statement Mitch told us about Ann reading at the hearing? We have a copy to share with you. I was nine years old when you started to abuse me. Nine. You were my teacher and you molested me. You hurt me every single day. I was scared to go to school. I knew that you would be there. Every day I went to school, I knew that you were going to hurt me. I was afraid of you. You told me not to tell anyone. You were my teacher. I listened to you. I obeyed you. You made me skip recess just so you could abuse me. At lunch, I used to eat so slowly because I knew that you were waiting for me. You were waiting to hurt me. Every day, you made me come to you and you hurt me. You were my teacher. I obeyed you. I hated going to school. Every day when I went to school, you looked for an opportunity to abuse me to hurt me. You pretended to care about kids, but all you cared about was yourself and your twisted, sick life. You didn't care about teaching me. You didn't care about me. All you cared about was yourself. When it was my birthday, my birthday, you didn't care. You saw it as another opportunity to attack me. You threatened me. You said if I told anyone, you would flunk me. 
You said if I told anyone, you would put my pictures on the internet. When I told the police what you did, you lied. You said it didn't happen. You said that I made up stories. You told the police that I was a liar. Like the coward you are, you blamed me. You claimed that you were innocent. You didn't take responsibility. You didn't confess. Instead, you took revenge. You put my picture on the internet. My life has changed forever because of you. When I close my eyes, I see you. I see you every day. I see you stare at me. In my new life, I have to be strong. Why? Because I know that there are wicked, evil people like you who like to hurt kids. The memories of what you did will always be with me. What you did and the trust you betrayed will always be with me. But I am strong. I have to be. I am afraid of evil, but I will not back down in the face of it. I will, with God's help and the help of my family and those around me, continue to be strong. I want to thank all of the people who believed in me and worked hard to put you behind bars. My mom and dad, Mitch Kaiser, Ken Cotter, Mrs. Hahn, and my counselor, Linda. These people care. These people are not phony like you, Mr. Wiley. They help kids. What a powerful statement from Anne. Thank you, Mitch, for sharing her story with us and for believing Anne. At the top of the show, I mentioned we have an update from a previous episode. In that episode, we talked to Doug Estes about the murder of Laramie Klein. If you recall, Laramie's mother told investigators about text messages she received that didn't sound as if her daughter wrote them. Laramie's mother contacted the show and wanted to clarify a few things. Keeping true to our core beliefs here at Magnet to seek truth and protect the innocent, we wanted to share what Laramie's mother told me about her daughter's case. To her knowledge, David Houston Harvey was not Laramie's boyfriend. They were friends from work, and Laramie was trying to help him. David had a friend in Denver they were going to see, and that was supposed to be the purpose of their trip. Her mother expressed her appreciation for the difficult investigative work on the case and for seeing it through to the prison sentences in both Colorado and Arkansas. Also, she shared that Laramie wasn't actually named after the town in Wyoming. It was just a coincidence. Her full name? Laramie Cheyenne Klein. That's it from us this episode. Thanks for listening. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Frucklidge with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening.